The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. We think sharing experience is essential to being human. Yet from the taste of an apple to giving birth, we know we cannot fully describe the experience to someone who has not had it already. Many now maintain that it is impossible to communicate the experience of discrimination and other cultures can only be understood by those who have experienced them. But even if it remains an impossible task, should it nevertheless remain something that is continually strived for? Joining us to debate whether language is capable of communicating experience are Professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University, Kehinde Andrews, Linguist and Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, John McWhorter, and Professor of Philosophy and Cognitive Science at Yale University, Laurie Ann Paul. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, philosopher Mary Jane Rubinstein. Good evening and welcome to our debate on language and power. We're so happy to have you. We tend to think that sharing experience is essential to being human. At an individual level, we share experience to get to know others and understand them. We share political experience to build community and solidarity. Yet from the taste of an apple to giving birth, we know we cannot fully describe experience to someone who's not already had it themselves. And many maintain that the experience of discrimination can only be understood by those who have experienced it. Is the idea that we can understand the experience of others the liberal fantasy of a white male privileged elite? Should authors limit their writing to experiences they have undergone or which fall within the realm of their culture? Or is this a recipe for division and conflict? Should we instead do all we can to share experience and seek a common language to understand each other and the world? We have three brilliant humans to help us think through these questions today. First, John McWhorter is an American linguist and associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. He has written books on both language and race, including the forthcoming Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, and Losing the Race, Self-Sabotage in Black America. Kyandi Andrews is a British academic, author, and activist, and professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University. His latest release, The New Age of Empire, 
How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World, came out in February of this year. And L.A. Paul is a professor of philosophy and cognitive science at Yale University. She's best known for her research on transformative experience, and her book of the same name argues that we can know very little about our subjective futures. So here we go with our brief introductory pitches, three minutes each. We'll start with Kyandi Andrews, and the question is, can we ever really understand the experiences of others? Kyandi, go for it. Um, hi, good evening. Um, dep I suppose it depends where you are, but hello <laughs> anyway. And I think the key part of this is really to, I want to focus on the power aspect of this um, because language is interesting, but really this is the, the whole issue here is the power. And we, we can't, we're not having this conversation in a vacuum, right? Um, can you understand the experiences, I guess, in some theoretical realm potentially, but we have to understand um that you know there isn't just this marketplace of ideas where everybody comes to this equally we actually we're in a, a place um an arena uh, the places that produce ideas and language and, and where people can speak a deeply problematic rooted in centuries of racism um and deeply imbalanced right so when we're even starting to have that conversation um it is a conversation you have to really understand the long history of the real question here is who gets to speak who gets to write um, and that really is the, the nub of this debate, right? That for far too long, if you think about the West, if you like Britain, America, et cetera, um, black and brown creators have really been locked out from that process. So you haven't had as many black and brown voices there in the first place. And not just locked out accidentally, locked out on purpose, right? This is one of the ways that racism works. So we're not there, right? I'll give you a congress. And we, we like to think this has changed uh, dramatically, but it really hasn't, right? So if you think about, publishing industry today think about who's the producers and as somebody who works you know really does work a lot with mainstream producers mainstream publishers is you'll be very surprised how white it is right so they're actually the the voices you're making the decisions are still still very still very um narrow um actually the, the book i wrote before this this book was called back to black retelling black radicalism for the 21st century and the feedback i got from a major publisher was it's too black like literally that was the feedback it's too black um, and it just shows you the, the there's, there's a kind of playing field, right? That isn't equal, right? That has particular norms and expectations. Uh, as well as there not being black and brown authors, you've also seen that um, the way the black and brown people have been represented has been historically terrible. These hackneyed stereotypes, um, flawed characters going all the way back to Othello, right? Uh, coming through with ideas like the Mammy and the Matriarch and terrible movies like Gone with the Wind, et cetera. But again, it's, it's, look at today, it's not that much better. The idea of the black box, the hoodlum, um, the really narrow roles that uh, black women still operate in the, um, in, in the mainstream media and, and television, et cetera, and, 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 in, and in literature. So when we're having this question about can people represent, it's the wrong question. Can we trust the institutions we're trusting to represent black people and brown people effectively? And the answer, I think the answer is no, right? And we have to, again, it really is about saying we, we, we have a discourse, a public discourse, a, we have a, a way of producing ideas which is really distorted by historical delusions and myths, right? Which isn't an equal playing field, which doesn't, which doesn't always, which, you know, you can have, great representation but it, it's it's almost the the when you do it's almost kind of out of, it stands out right because it's, it's out of the norm um and so i want to the kind of final point i make is that it is this kind of liberal idea that we don't want division we just want this if you can if you can 
get the other, if other people understand you, this is what we, this is what is the solution. This is complete nonsense. I mean, we've been on the right side of the argument for 500 years. This is not done as any good, right? Like, is it, it, isn't, the, it isn't the case that uh, we haven't tried to make these arguments. It's the fact that when you try to make these arguments, you find you end up talking around in circles or oftentimes talking to yourself. And the honest truth is that division is rooted into the system that we have. Um, and the idea that we just all need to come out together and hold hands and, and, and share experiences is the, is the solution is really not the case. Actually, a bit more complex than probably what we need. Thank you so much. John, how do you respond to this admittedly flawed question? Um, can we ever really understand the experiences of others, please? I understand what Kehinde is saying, but I, I find what he's saying to correspond more gracefully to a present tense analysis than thinking about how history proceeds. And history, unfortunately, proceeds slowly. That's the problem. Revolutions are rare and usually, and usually don't work. And so my brief answer to the question is that, for one thing, there are three things. One thing is that I worry that this is the question that we ask so very, very much when we talk about understanding. If somebody from 50 years ago listened to a question about us understanding each other, they would almost be perplexed that our spontaneous impulse today is to assume that the question really refers to that of oppression. And it's not that oppression isn't real, but we're to assume that the most interesting thing, the most urgent thing, the most important thing to address about human relations especially in stratified societies, is who is oppressing who and whether or not the oppressor can understand the perspective of the oppressed. Now, it's not that that's a meaningless topic and it's not that there is an injustice in the world, but that is one of what I would venture is several dozen facets of what it is to be human, what it is to be a human society. And I think that the way we're encouraged to look at it ends up being a minimization, not of what it is to be, and let's face it, white. It's a minimization also of what it is to be brown or something else. Oppression is real. It is not the defining experience of all people who are not white to the extent that especially we have been told in a mainstreamed way since roughly June of last year. Second, I am worried that we're saying that white people don't understand without thinking about how much less they understood as recently as 25 or 30 years ago. I see great progress on this. With all due respect, Kinde, I don't go through life myself thinking of whites as, if I may, as obtuse as you're implying, that we just keep beating our heads against the wall. It feels to me as if teachers I knew when I was, say, five years old, we were going back 50 years at this point, really were quite clueless compared to roughly anybody who was allowed anywhere near a student today, for example. I think that slowly society is acquiring an understanding of how the person below feels that is unprecedented in the history of the species. 300,000 years of Homo sapiens, name any other time when the rulers are capable of even pretending to understand what they do to those down below, to the extent that today's intelligentsia, and frankly, even many not intelligentsia people do. I think that history is moving along, and very briefly, third, I think that um, when we have this particular sense of oppression, there's an unfortunate thing that happens because of social history where many people, not all, I wouldn't even say most, but there is an encouragement of those of us who are down below 
to exaggerate, I hate to say this, but to fabricate, to suppose that this kind of being misunderstood is the essence or the most important thing about being, for example, black. And when somebody does that, they're not being deliberately manipulative. I, I'm not calling anybody a snowflake either. But this happens. It happens more than we like to think. I don't like mentioning it. But the way we talk about this encourages a lot of black young people to think that the most interesting thing about them is their victimhood. And I find that diminishing, not of white people. I'm not defending white people here. I find it diminishing of people of color to focus on it in the way that we do. I think that we need to change the dialogue somewhat. Thank you so much. And Laurie, um, over to you. The question, the invitation here is to respond to the question, can we ever really understand the experiences of others? Please. Well, like a good philosopher, I'm going to say yes and no. So I'll start with no um, and to see why uh, I think the answer is no. I'll quote Aldous Huxley, where he says, we live together, we act on and react to one another, but always and in all circumstances, we are by ourselves. We can pull information about experiences, but never the experiences themselves. From family to nation, every group is a society of island universes. Now this is about the problem of other minds. So in a certain way, the answer is no. We can't ever really understand the experiences of others because we're all fundamentally alone in a disturbing way. But in another sense, I think there's hope. That comes when we have experiences that are similar to the experiences of others, right? And hopefully with empathy and epistemic humility, we can attempt to try to understand something about the experiences of others. But I don't wanna to be too optimistic about this for just the reasons that have been sort of outlined by uh, Kehinde and John already, because when people have had very different kinds of experiences, those of us who haven't had those kinds of experiences lack access into the distinctive nature of that lived experience. Without living that kind of experience ourselves, we should not pretend that we have the ability to understand the nature of that experience. Instead, we need to step back and listen and respect the fact that sometimes people have experiences and uh, live their lives um, in contexts that are foreign to those of us who live our lives in another, a different kind of context. And so in order to fully understand their experience, we'd have to project ourselves into their lived experience and have that experience for ourselves. And that just may not be possible. So we need to recognize that. And I think one job um, of a white person like myself is to listen and to understand that there are things that maybe I can't know and to respect that and to respect the testimony of somebody who's had a different kind of life to experience than I had. Great. Thank you so much. So on precisely on that, on that listening question, um, I'd like to get as clear as possible about where the three of you are joining and parting company in these very difficult questions. So let's start um, sort of basically with, a, with a, a building block and ask um, when, when we're thinking about Laurie saying, uh, commending the importance of listening. Um, does language work for this, right? Does language, for example, allow us to communicate our experiences to other people 
I don't, or to what extent does language allow us to communicate our experiences to other people? Because it's language, right? That does that, does that work of joining those islands. So I'd like to start by asking John, who knows a couple of things about language. John, please, how does language help us or how far does it help us in communicating our experiences to other people? We can communicate to other people any experience that we have with enough accuracy and nuance that it does the job that any society of sophisticated people would need, is my view. And I'm not trying to be contrary in saying that. And we've got to watch out for some things that get around out there about how what language you speak makes you somebody who's looking at the world through a different pair of glasses. Because we're often told that on the basis of things like Russian doesn't have one word for blue. They've got one word that means what we mean by light blue and another word that means what we mean by dark blue. And so that means that blue pops more for them. The, the Hopi Native Americans don't have any indications of tense in their language. And so that's why they have a cyclical vision of time and that that makes them process. And that actually is not true. But you think to yourself, boy, that makes the Hopi interesting. All of that kind of Sapir Wharf Hypothesis 1.0 that you get in a good newspaper. A lot of that stuff is very close to junk science. Language does influence thought in subtle ways, but they're not usually the kinds that would really make a whole lot of sense in the paper or in a magazine. They're just not that dramatic. And if you take that view too far, there are many languages that lack things that we English speakers think of as normal, where if you're going to go for the idea that language impedes communication, you end up unintentionally calling, for example, the entire country of China slightly dimwitted. There are things about Chinese where based on that reading, they must not be seeing things that we're seeing, which they clearly are. So. I worry about that. And in terms of communication in general, I would, I would throw this out. Now, this is getting a little bit too, it's all about me, but I don't think it is. And it's this, LA. As far as racism goes, what I've encountered since 1965, and I'm not saying I haven't, but in terms of those things, if you and I were sitting, you can see how we're like in the same architecture. We lead similar lives, you can tell. I could sit with you with a cup of tea and explain to you all the subtle sorts of things that I felt that maybe were not too obvious. And you could be in my body about 97%. And the other 3%, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, we are all alone. It's too bad. But that's all of us. And there's no reason to think that because I'm Black, that aloneness is more painful for me in that it will manifest itself somewhat in a white person not being able to utterly and completely understand me. But there is no kind of racism I've experienced where I couldn't make you understand it with vividness and precision and probably in about three minutes. And this is the thing. No, I'm not talking about me being a, a language meister or something. I think pretty much any Black person of my demographic in particular, if we have certain cultural commonalities, could do that. I don't feel like I could, I'm obscure to you. And I think I'm speaking for a great many Black people if I put it in a certain way. That's a little bit too much about me, but I'm saying it that way because I think that that would be true of a great many Black people, including poor ones. I mean, I don't Hi, know. Andy, can I, yeah. I mean, as I've spent the whole day talking about Meghan Markle, I think this is the, actually the perfect example where, you know, you have people, and this is experience that a lot of Black people in our kind of positions, middle-class elite jobs, right? You can explain in language, in quite simple language, I experienced racism and it had an impact on my mental health. 
but the response you get that don't get through right and actually yeah. i think the yeah. fact that the, the, prince, <laughs> the royalty in england can't make that get through tells you there's a real problem here where actually it is about how things are received it doesn't really matter what language you speak in you're still gonna have that problem exactly the part the point isn't look i'm gonna say that like i've got two kids and i'm gonna tell you right now that you don't know what it's like to push a baby out of your vagina and i can tell you all about it but you're still not going to know what it's like okay and that doesn't mean i can't describe it in certain ways and i would expect you to respect my description and understand something about it but there's another feature of of this account that involves like the nature of experience and the experience is 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 necessary sometimes language just isn't the vehicle that for expression that's just the way our brains work so that's the point I'm trying to make, that we have to be open to the special role for experience and the kinds of distinctive kinds of characters and qualities that uh, different kinds of experiences carry for different people. Like, try to explain to me, like, what it's like to see red if I've never seen red, if I'm congenitally blind. Like, we just don't have the language for that. You know, I don't think the race stuff is as hard as those two things you mentioned. No, you cannot describe to somebody who can't see color what red is. I can try very intimately to imagine what it would be like to push a baby out. But of course, just anatomically, there's no way I can quite get there. But if I talk about, well, I was different. I had a different skin color and based on certain socio-historical factors, people may have presumed subconsciously that I was this, that, or the other. Then a person said something and they put it in this way and this is how it made me feel and I couldn't say anything at the time, so I had to leave. Frankly, I think that's easier than explaining to somebody what red is because we're just talking about human experience where most human beings have felt dismissal of some kind or been misrepresented in some way. So that's so what my is response persistent? to that. Why, why is it, why is that simple? Why does it persist? Because people may, people have been saying we made these complaints again and again and they persist and they persist. If it's that straightforward, why do these problems keep just keep persisting? To be honest, I think that we're taught, I have to say this carefully, I think we're taught to propose that these things are more complex and less fruitful than they are. I'll just leave it. I'll leave it there. Kende, I really want to know what you what you what you think of that. I like where 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 do you put that? No, because I mean this isn't I mean this isn't really that complicated, right? You have um, you can talk to if you poll if you just polled with black people and said how many times have you made a complaint about racism in your workplace and it was taken seriously? I would guess and personal personal experience and professional experience says it's not taken seriously. You try to explain, you put it in language, you write it down, you have to you go over it, and it doesn't. I haven't seen really no evidence that it ever gets across. So that's not that's not about me making it too complex. That's about the put it, the language isn't enough because there's a bigger framework where the language is being interpreted through, and that's the problem, right? It's not as simple as you can just say it and people understand it. Because if that was the case, surely things would have changed. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Talk about <laughs> you really don't. I know, you know, never, never. <laughs> but, but I mean, so the point is, like, it's, it's, it's. I think it's, it's completely legitimate for um, us to say, look, you know, don't try to kind of hide behind some claim that you know I've got some kind of experience that I can't communicate to you because. Um, I'm not able to express myself in some, like as though it was some kind of limit, limiting thing. It's rather that I really just think that there are different ways in which we understand um, the lives of others and different ways in which we respect people. And we just need to be open to these different possibilities. And if it's the case that um, language just by itself is insufficient for a kind of complete understanding, then mm -hmm. we should just recognize that and develop alternative models that can assist us 
to sort of communicate some of this information. It, does this fit? Does this fit in though? 1985. I had this hideous corporate job for a while. It might as well have been the TV show The Office. I was in the, in there. Something happened to me that I think was racially tinged by some clueless person about twice my age at the time. Now, I didn't say anything because I had other things to do, but I can look back and I realize if I had made a complaint, none of those white people then would have known what I meant. It was just they thought racism was burning across. It would have been really hard. But why I don't understand what we're talking about now goes back to that thing I said about how people do progress. And frankly, there may be a difference between the different sides of the pond. But here, if that kid who was me, or even the aging person now who was me, made that kind of complaint, it would be listened to instantly. If anything, most white people in power, at least in this world, and this world isn't that narrow. It's not like being in a university means that you're in the middle of the world all by yourself. Everybody would respond. There would be no question. And so what, how does that fit in? I don't think that's true. I mean, I think I mean, all the evidence I've read about the states as well, the fact that you even have the term microaggressions, right, is it, which captures these kind of things which are difficult to explain. I, I don't, I think it's, that's kind of a, this taken for granted exception that now we take all these things seriously. I actually think the lived experiences of most people will tell you they're still not taken seriously. So it can't just be an issue of the language. There's also, so, and I, I think we can use this to move into our next sort of area of focus, which is to say, We've got the question as to uh, of whether or not there's a limit to the understanding of the experiences of other people on the one hand, and we may say, yes, there's a limit. No, there's not a limit. These are limits are in different places. But then there's the question of whether there's a limit to the usefulness of understanding at all, right? It may be that somebody could understand, for example, John, uh, some, somebody like a, a, a white middle-class human could understand what you're saying and could say that's terrible and yet there might be no real response to things in the u.s at least um you know black and brown kids are killed in ways by you know the state that um that white kids are not um so i think the the, the question here becomes uh, whether or not language can produce understanding empathy and right, our understanding and empathy the goals is that are, are those are those sufficient goals um, so the so the question for our next our next sort of focus is um, if we think about our co current political divisions um, regarding say Brexit or the U.S. election, um, incarceration, police violence, masking mandates, the House of Windsor, things like right, are these increasingly toxic political disagreements caused by our inability to understand and empathize with one another? Is that what the, is that the problem? Is the problem understanding and empathy? Um, if so, how do we increase such understanding across racial and cultural differences? Right. Um, we're hearing from Lori that if, if there are limits to language, we have to find other ways. What are those other ways um, to encourage empathy and understanding? Um, if not, what else might be the source of the problem? Right? If, if we're not aiming for if, if understanding and empathy don't, in fact, help, um, then what might be the source of the problem instead? Um, and for this, uh, Kayandi, can we start with you, please? Yeah, well, I think the whole problem is that we believe that understanding and empathy is a solution because it really isn't, right? I mean, that isn't what's causing the problem. What's causing these divisions is a society which is based structurally on inequality, right? I mean, when you have a society which is founded on white supremacy, rooted on white supremacy, and practices white supremacy, that's going to cause division, right? This causes division. It causes gender divisions. And what we're seeing is the just that's the is just the exploration of that. It's not, this isn't something you can solve with empathy. And this is one of the things I always push back in the liberal debate is actually some conflict is actually what we need. This is what we should be saying. Actually, some things are wrong and should be challenged and that's fine. 
And the idea that we overcome everything by holding hands and having empathy, that's, that's, that's really the wrong way to look at the problem, I think. Laura, what do you think? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually like pretty sympathetic to that uh, <laughs> in general. But um, let me, I guess, add that I was, I'm thinking about um, John, like when you're saying, well, look, people, you know, if, if I said in today's context that I was um, a victim of a certain kind of racial aggression or microaggression, people would listen. And I think some people would listen. It depends on what context you're in, right? Um, but I, there's this other question, which is about, I don't think that people would listen because they empathize or under, at least a white person would be like, oh, I get it. They would just, they just should listen and take it on spec because they know that we live in a very kind of racist society. That's a really different reason for someone listening, right? So it's not about this other kind. And then, so going back to the thought that, well, look, we need to kind of um, aggressively, one might say, kind of dismantle the kind of structures of oppression because we can't just kind of say, everybody can be happy loving people and we'll hold hands and have empathy and everything will get better. Like that's bullshit, obviously, right? And so, um, but the, I think it can be helpful to see that there's a reason maybe why you can't understand what it's like for me to have had a baby, right? And that it doesn't mean that it was, there wasn't something pretty distinctive and painful and difficult about having that baby, right? So the fact that you can't understand it doesn't mean that it wasn't there or that it isn't important. It just means that's just the way our brains work. So then we recognize that, I would hope, and use that as part of our uh, motivation for dismantling some of these, uh, some, of, some of the problematic kinds of, you know, institutions that we have. That's... That's the way that I want to back up what Kim was saying. You know, I don't, I don't disagree with either one of you on this. I mean, my personal view is that empathy is only ever going to go so far, that there's only so much of it that I think we're capable of, especially across groups, and that it's a rather novel idea that we need empathy to go beyond a certain point. Certainly not kumbaya. That's <laughs> for one thing, for one thing, it's not going to happen. And also it's not, it's not necessary. I think that things happen that it's easy to miss those. So for example, microaggression, this is, um, it's early 2021. I know that in 2011, nobody had ever heard of that. That was something that only a few psychologists and education specialists talked about. I had just learned it. In 2013, every undergraduate at least knew the term. And so, yeah, when I talk about that, if I were, I even look like the guy, the guy in Central Park, the birder who had that horrible thing done to him by this woman who was walking her dog without a leash. And she says that she's going to call the cops on him. Notice the grand outpouring of contempt for her and what she did for him. That wouldn't have happened, say, 20 years ago. So when I say progress happens, I don't mean things are better now than they were in the days of W.E.B. Du Bois. I mean that things happen by decades, but still, it's only ever going to go so far. And my interest is in people understanding each other to a certain extent. But beyond that, we just have to understand that, for example, there will never be enough empathy that a significant number of white people are going to say, I am complicit in an abstract construct called systemic racism. And therefore, I need to profoundly change everything that I do and everything that I support and everything that I like and how I hear every word black people say, because I'm complicit. That is a beautiful framework. It's artistic. White fragility has been translated into German. And it gives you a sense in German, it comes out as like German <laughs> breakableness. And it lets you know fragility, all of this. That's not going to go too far. People are, and Laurie, I get the feeling you're indicating there's a certain amount of virtue signaling that can go on. People will say, oh, yeah, I get it. But how much do they really get it? 
I'm not sure they need to get it that much. Yeah. Nobody doing civil rights in the United States was expecting as much getting this as we've come to expect over about the past 20 years, who was concerned with the black condition. It'd be interesting to talk to James Baldwin about the way we talk about it now. Maybe we've made an advance past him, but as you can tell, I don't really think so. There's an extent to which we just have to make our own gardens grow. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's fair. And I think that, I think, I mean, I think that's the key thing here is I don't, I don't, I don't know that there's whatever. No, there certainly is a kind of virtue signaling you can get from this. There certainly is. People will buy a book like White Fragility, or in the UK we have a book, um, uh, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And a lot of people just carry it around with them, and it's like a badge. <laughs> I mean, that's terrible, but that's not getting. Oh, it. you've got one too. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, and I think the idea that we have to recognise that some things should be challenged, and it's fine. I mean, I think like the idea that. Do we, the people in the capital, do we want to empathize with them? No, I get it. I get enough of that to know. We just challenge it and move on. And I think that's important. I think the idea that you can have conflict and division is fine. It just, it's just how you go, how you work through it. Yeah, that's how change, ha I mean, I think that's how change happens a lot of times, right? Like you change things, not because everyone kind of comes together and, I mean, there's a small, as a subset of people who are motivated to create change and others, they just have to deal with it. And you just bring the change, you bring the change on. That's what happened in the sixties. Yeah. And here we are. And so, well, but, and again, to, to, to head back to the, um, this is wonderful. I'm really glad that you're all, uh, you know, on the same, on the same page about this, but I do sense that you've got some, some. <laughs> I'm surprised. I'm about to say I was surprised. <laughs> um, I do sense that you've got some, some significant disagreements here um, when it comes to, not, not when it comes to the goal, not when it comes to the, but, but the, the means of achieving the goal, the means of achieving the goal of uh, living in a more just society. I mean, I'm thinking about um, Socrates asking whether it's possible to do the good without knowing the good, right? And you can, and then the question becomes, uh, well, if you do the good, if you do, if you don't do the good while you are knowing the good, then it's clear that you don't know the good to begin with. So really, you actually do have to know the good in order properly to do the good. And I, I'm not, I'm not sure that we all uh, necessarily agree on this. Um, again, this, this, the place of knowledge and the importance of knowledge, um, and the place and the importance of language. Um, and sp so specifically for the last focus, um, I'd like us to ask if it is important to try to come to some sort of shared language um, about different kinds of experience, about uh, different, uh, about sort of common goals. Are we looking for a kind of common language? Or as I'm starting to hear from Kayandi, is it more important actually to sort of maximize difference um, in, in communication? Are we heading for, uh, is it important to find something like a common language uh, or is that actually uh, not a goal? And I'm wondering, uh, Laurie, if you could talk a little bit about this, about um, the way that, uh, just to sort of dive into the way that we can, uh, we can communicate experience, we can talk about experience, the possibility of common language. Well, I mean, I, mean, I have, my work is all about how um, discovering new kinds of experiences is epistemically and personally transformative. So, I mean, one way that you can, I don't think I have any answers here. I'd actually, I really would rather hear from, from our other two speakers and maybe I could add something, but I, I don't, I don't know how to move forward and I'm not sure it's my role to to make a suggestion here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm wondering, for example, specifically about, um, whether it's important to be able to communicate the specificity of the experience of giving I birth. And um, 
I see. Yeah. Um, well, so, I mean, again, since I think that there are certain dimensions of experience that just can't be communicated through testimony or description, maybe some, like some things can be communicated through art and other, and, you know, other kinds of expression through virtual reality. But even then, um, I think there are real questions about whether everything of substance can be transmitted, right? Um, and so my basic view is that we try to approach this you know, from a way that's as educated about basically the cognitive, like the the, cog the cognitive computational challenges involved when we um, design policy and do um, and decision address decision theoretic questions that we're sensitive to the role of the of and importance of different kinds of lived experiences and the inaccessibility of the nature of those different kinds of experiences, and so that we respect relevant kinds of testimony. That's like that's that's the approach that that I want to take. But that that's a very theoretical approach. It doesn't address these other questions about like how to basically I think uh, like political justice and social justice, which I think require a much more kind of direct um, sort of attack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kind of, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, I mean, I mean, to make it kind of really simplistic, but it's quite a good way to kind of draw the d distinction would be, um, you know, the civil rights, you kind of have the Martin Luther King approach, which is the more, you know, it's, it's certainly confrontational, but it's about trying to heal across, it's trying to bring in everybody, right? I've always been more of the Malcolm X uh, school, which really isn't about that. It is about saying what needs to be said. It's about saying it unapologetically, the idea we should make it plain. So I actually do think language is actually really important. And it's really one of the things you've probably lost uh, since in the last 40 or so years is this kind of much more radical canton language, which kind of calls the whole debate. So when I say terms like, I don't know, the psychosis of whiteness, for example, that's something which is purposely provocative. Like the whole purpose of it is to get us thinking, is to get us thinking in new ways. And I think actually that kind of language is really important and something that has, has kind of been lost as we try to find this middle ground. Of it. Mm -hmm. But it's not, but it's not a common language. Yeah, John, please. Um, it's funny, I, you know, being a linguist, maybe I'm supposed to say we should seek a common language, but I'm not sure that it's necessary when we're talking about a group getting ahead and thriving. We, we're fish who don't know we're wet in the way we talk about some of these things. The way that Black leaders, starting in the United States, and then this whole paradigm spreads elsewhere, started saying in the late 60s um, against Dr. King that what we need to do is turn society upside down. Society must turn upside down for us to succeed. And until whites, quote unquote, let go of their power, et cetera, nothing significant can happen. And we're so used to that, that that seems like the black thing to say. Anybody black now who doesn't remember when that was the way civil rights went is now very old or has passed on into a different place. And so it seems like that's the only way to forge progress as opposed to the idea that society is imperfect, there are power differentials, and we can talk about how they're going to manifest themselves once we are no longer part of that problem, but there are power differentials. We are going to do our best within the society such as it is, and then we're going to have a conversation about ideals as to how we can make the society better. That was what King assumed. King's idea was let us in, let us in the door, and then we'll take care of ourselves. Then it's people like Stokely Carmichael who start saying, turn everything upside down, burn the motherfucker down. And there's a charisma, a charisma in that, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that it's necessary. There are all sorts of things that would turn Black America upside down in a generation that don't require burning anything down, I don't mean literally. And I'm not sure that it can work because it would be one thing to have this conversation in 1982. 
But we're in 2021. We've been talking about race this way for over 50 years. And the revolution never happens. And it's painfully clear that it's not going to. And yeah, so, I, got, Candy, I just have a half sentence. I just wish that we stopped trying to see across the divide and just maybe took a page from Malcolm X and took care of ourselves. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, but I think that you're underplaying how much actually the King narrative is what we do, right? Like, you just had Barack Obama. I mean, he's a perfect example of that. You have this kind of black elected officials. That kind of has been. We have really have, where is the Malcolm Stokely, even the Panthers? I mean, it has, that really has declined. And I think in, even if you kind of want that more liberal change and that's, you need the radical language. You need the alternative. I mean, Malcolm even has this where he's talking to Chris Scott King and saying, look, I mean, he called, he, he called uh, uh, Uncle Tom all the time, was like purposely provocative. But the way Malcolm saw it was he was doing uh, Martin a favor, right? Like this, if, if I'm the firebrand, then you get the, then we're going to have you, right? And without that, without that incendiary, without that radical alternative, you kind of get stuck where we are, where we're just kind of in this malaise where mass incarceration, police shootings, and we don't really know what to do, right? So I think that it is important to bring back that, that more radical just- language. Can I just add, I think there's like a really interesting, there are two different roles for the radical languages in here. So on the one hand, um, you can use radical language to kind of unite a community, right? A group of people who uh, have with shared interests, shared experiences, et cetera. But, uh, but at the same thing, time, that radical language can then also um, have an effect on people who are related communities who you like. So for example, you know, so like a white person hearing like, um, you know, a speech from, I don't know, Malcolm X or uh, Martin Luther King is gonna respond differently Right. And in an important way. And it's and it's good. That's part of the intent. Right. So that the, and there's a way in which the fact of my not getting the same having the same response, let's say, to um, a really nice piece of like motivating rhetoric, capturing, I think, in powerful ways, like, you know, structures of injustice. Like, it's important that I think, wait a minute, I don't really get that or what's going on. Whereas it's also really important that the same words are heard by a different group um, in, in, uh, in a way that can kind of, I think, bring people together and and understand and have shared, uh, I guess, um, motivations and goals. Like, I like that. I think that there's a, like, that's an important way in which both failing to understand and understanding um, come together and with the way that language works. John, what do you think about that? I think that um, that is very important to keep in mind and actually plays into the fact that we have different, we have different ways of experiencing things. I just, um, I'm not, um, Candy, I don't know how you would put yourself on this. And Lori, I don't know how you would either. I'm not an idealist beyond a certain point. I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. And I think that I think that human beings are flawed. I certainly am. And I just, I don't have the hope that a lot of people have. And it's interesting that that makes me considered somebody who's conservative, somebody who doesn't want to talk about racism, et cetera. Part of the reason that I don't want to talk about it as much as some people is just because I feel like it's not going to go away. And I feel like it doesn't have to, to the extent that we often say. And you move on in this very imperfect world, but less imperfect than it was in 2011 when nobody even knew what a microaggression was. And now it's a mainstream concept. So yeah, I guess I'm just, um, I'm Eeyore here. And so I just don't see revolution happening the way a lot of people seem to wish it would. And maybe it's because I lack imagination. That's what we need, different language. 
mean, that's what we need different light. And that, I mean, that's the whole point, right? It's like we need a different imagination. We need to get back to that revolutionary imagination because this is really important, right? Like it, this isn't the only thing that can happen. We need racism is deeply structured into the society and you can see this playing out and we need to do different things. And one of the real purposes of that kind of revolutionary language, that radical language, is to inspire people to to, to change, right? And so that's why I think it's really important. That we kind do you of mean like that language? Do you mean like from the sidelines, always making sure the ship doesn't go too far in the wrong direction, or as a leading kind of rhetoric? No, I no, I actually mean like, but my whole the book I wrote previously was back to black retelling black radicalism for the twenty first century. I actually think as in you actually need a revolution, which means you might need revolutionary language for that. I think that would be quite necessary. There's our difference. Because I don't think that there should be no black radical language. That has gotten a lot done. But for me, it's one voice at the table, as opposed to the captain steering the ship. But I'm not saying that there should not be that language. Yeah. Thank you so much, everybody. Um, thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.